You're listening to Privacy and Security Insights, brought to you by Picasso. Hello and welcome to Picasso Podcast, episode nine of the first series brought to you by Picasso. I am absolutely ecstatic with excitement to hear from Nick Graham, partner at Denton's, who is joining us today to talk about privacy risk and how to navigate the complexities of this subject. I'm Steve Wright, conducting this podcast with you today. Delighted to have Nick Graham here, has been a lawyer a long time and a fantastic advisor to me over the years. So, so I'm really delighted to be here today talking about data privacy risk. Hi, Steve. Great to be with you. Brilliant. So I've read your article. I really liked it. When you started this journey, maybe many years ago, what was your thinking about risk when you first come into the industry? Was risk even on your agenda? You're a lawyer by training. Or has it become more fashionable just to set the context here? I don't think it was. So I got involved in data protection in the 1990s. So that's a while ago. And it was when the full directive, when it was the new law was coming in. And I think I was in-house at the time and we looked at it as a sort of set of legal obligations that we had to comply with. And I remember writing a, a very long advice note memo to the business explaining this thing about this thing called transparency and a new, a new components like restrictions on data exports and where data exports. For me, risk came later. It's a while ago. It was sort of 2000 and, mm-hmm. and we talked about the idea of it was really driven by ensuring compliance. It was even at that point, it was all about, here's the legal obligation. How do we comply as opposed to how do we demonstrate compliance? And then I remember the conversation going on to concepts at various conferences. And this was, bear in mind, this was quite new and not particularly discussed or clear even at the time, but the idea of having something called policies procedures, audit, training, and awareness. And there were articles written about this. It was uh, the idea of a control framework and and the jar and the sort of terminology around KPIs and metrics, benchmarking, that really wasn't part of the conversation then. So that that came later. Interesting. Thank you, Nick. Uh, The article mentions about the significant growth in the number of countries with comprehensive data privacy laws. So how has, and you sort of alluded it to your intro there, how has the landscape evolved? And similarly, what challenges do you see for businesses or what challenges do businesses face in that increasing complexity of these laws? There's sort of two questions there. So So I think it's changed in terms of, obviously there's a lot more law and guidance and requirements, legal requirements and sort of related requirements. And what's basically changed is the way I kind of characterize it is there's been a sort of vertical growth and horizontal vertical, meaning a lot more detail than we used to have. I mean, take sort of GDPR as an example. There are truthfully lots of areas where GDPR says things like you've got to have a representative and you've got to have privacy notices. You've got to comply with and demonstrate a lawful basis. A lot of that was in the old law, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm as explicit, but in some cases, not particularly well enforced either. But obviously there's a lot more emphasis on compliance under GDPR. And so even if 
the GDPR rule is not new. It's being enforced much more strictly and prescriptively. And of course, there's lots of breach notification, extra detail around international transfers, specificity and notices. So you've got a huge sort of vertical growth of what is required. But you've also got horizontal growth in the sense of more countries adopting GDPR-type frameworks or comprehensive privacy laws. So obviously, some PIPL, particularly at the moment, the Brazilian law, then the US CCPA model. And so I can remember at conferences some time ago getting quite excited that there were maybe 25 countries with comprehensive privacy laws. And I remember my spiel and some of the presentations and, and the sessions was, oh, it used to be 15 to 20, and now we're nearly 30. And people go, wow, nearly 30. <laughs> um, yeah. it, 10, 12 years ago, we got up to 75, 76. Now it's over 160. A whole swathe of draft bills coming through. So if that's not a huge amount of kind of growth of legislation. And it tends to rear its head. Obviously, I mean, if you're a DPO, this is core to your skill set. But what we do find is it pops up, particularly since GDPR, actually, it pops up in all kinds of other scenarios. You might be doing a, a business sale transaction M&A activity and there's a data issue. And because the perception is such a sort of a dark art, often that gets immediately escalated for data protection review. And so, which takes me on to the challenges, I think. One of the challenges is because of the complexity, it makes it quite difficult for people to get involved, understand what good looks like. It's almost like, oh, it's, look, this is a clause on pensions or tax, so it's not me. I'm going to send it to the expert. And look, that has advantages. Issues get raised. Issues get resolved. But it does, to answer your question, I think that's one of the challenges. And I think the other challenges that we've typically seen are in terms of how to, how to cope with all this kind of growth of legislation and the complexities. Yeah. Well, there's the complexities. There's the income. There's kind of different rules in different countries issue but around a control framework getting the resource yeah getting signed off getting budget for as we've talked about sort of capability gap capacity gap there's a real knack in identifying a what the need is but also in a way that you stand a good chance of getting approval at management level yeah um and then there's a lot that I know we'll probably come on to around options for measuring compliance. Yes. Well, I was gonna, uh, that, that was alluded to in your um, paper about NIST and ICO accountability yeah. and other frameworks, et cetera. So before we go on to that, I just wanted to ask you, you spoke of this concept of GDPR fluidity, which I loved that one. But what are the examples? What do you mean by that? What is GDPR fluidity? I think the reason I use that phrase is I was starting to see a lot of clients ask questions around to the answer, frankly, it wasn't just that it wasn't clear, but there were different interpretations. A court, if you look at sort of good practice elsewhere in a particular market or a sector or a, yeah. a geography, and then you'd look back at the, the rules and the rules as in the legal rules might not, let's assume they wouldn't be enough to give you the answer. So you'd look at guidance. Yeah, And what yeah. you would find is there were quite a lot of examples where the goalposts have been on the move. So yeah. cookies, for example. Now, the, the cookies rule has changed from opt-out to opt-in. Up mm-hmm. That's a while ago, so you need, subject to the usual exemptions, you've got to get consent and be transparent. 
Mm -hmm. So far, so good. And yet the implementation has changed from, do you remember the old cookie notices where you just had a little X and it was never quite clear whether hitting the X was just to kind of tidy up the screen for you. Yes, that's right. A cleaner view. Yeah. Maybe have some sort of legal consequence. And And then we had that sort of morphed into a yes. So yeah. That was your choice. You you could say yes or or not. Um, and now we've got it went, it went to yes, manage. Then it, and, and now obviously the optimal is yes or no or manage or, or yeah. change your yeah. settings. So during that time, the rules haven't changed, but the guidance mm. has. Yeah. So it's evolving. So it's evolving. It's evolution. Yeah. Is that what you, you an interpretation yeah. is what? Yes. And specifically, the fluidity is. I suppose what I'm talking about is take any rule in a legal rule in relation to data protection. Can you assess the risk taking into account market sector, enforcement risk, culture, all these kind of nuances and reach a conclusion that X demonstrates compliance, but you could make an argument for Y or A or B. Mm -hmm. And then you really get into the consequence of that, which is where to most controllers or companies want to be, they want to be in the herd. That's the most common thing organizations will say. Well, some people want to be trailblazers, but many don't. They don't want to be ahead of the curve because that has its own risks, although there are advantages. Um, But they certainly don't want to be out on their own, looking different, not a great narrative for a regulator. And so, but trying to assess and reach a conclusion about where you want to be in terms of as compared with competitors and others in the market. I think that is a real challenge. And with the onset of AI, and that brings a new paradigm in data privacy risk. Mm. It's been so insightful. But what are your thoughts then? From so my thought is probably, and, and we talked about this in relation to the risk assessment tool with Picasso. I think it's too early. I mean, it's not impossible to come up with KPIs and metrics mm. for AI. And there are steps you can take, but I think it's very difficult to say to define a clear set of AI-related metrics because, I mean, there's a lot of talk about things like explainability, transparency, non-discrimination. Where does that lead you? Well, you're still a bit high level. I mean, what are you going to measure in a coherent and and it's kind of scientific fashion like we can do for have I presented a privacy notice quite quickly? What am I benchmarked against? And so the commentary that I've seen on this, and I think I agree with it, is you're probably looking at AI-related principles along the lines of what I've just referenced. Governance, mm-hmm. committee, governance input. And I quite hot what that, that's at least the starting point. And you, you could incorporate that into a control framework. But I sense we're not quite at the stage where you can go as, as granular as the kind of metrics that we would typically see elsewhere. They're still yeah. kind of working out to do. When we get to a stage where people can really say, this has been our journey in relation to AI, here's mm-hmm. the, then maybe we can get to be more concrete. But at the moment, I think that is a bit of a challenge. No, that's good. Thank you. So can you just give us a touch on the sort of different privacy risk frameworks, like the ICOs, Accountability Tracker and the, and the NIST, just to give a yeah, sure. little bit of insight our listeners. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of frameworks out there. They all do pretty much, they, they operate with the same broad objectives, uh, but they do things in very different ways. And 
two quite interesting examples, as you say. You've got the ICO accountability tracker, mm-hmm. which I would recommend. I mean, people will be aware of it, but you should definitely take a look. And it is, in my mind, a self-assessment tool comprising a long list, in fact, probably the superset of issues, risks, requirements that one would want to consider. Yeah. Mostly, I would see organizations selecting some of that and uh, yeah. using all of it. Some do, but it's quite, there's a lot to do if you were to adopt all of it. And then there's, you mentioned NIST. Now, NIST is interesting as a comparator because there are other approaches similar to the ISA accountability tracker. But NIST, to me, is more process-focused. NIST sets out, again, a sort of exemplar set of processes yeah. and and types of deliverables as a starting point. What they call profile, meaning where the organization is, where you are right now versus where you want to be. And then mm-hmm. it, really interestingly, something called implementation tiers, T-I-E-R-S, yeah. which defines agility and uh, resource required to ensure compliance and more specifically get you to where you want to get to. In other words, it's quite risk folk. It's sort of underpinned by yeah. kind of risk ethos, more so say than the ICO document. Yeah, so it's sort of a combination. So there's some elements. There are other examples. That it's probably the other ones, just to quickly mention, you've obviously got the BCR referential tables, which go through in great detail what, for the purposes of a BCR application, what you need. That can be quite a helpful cross-check. I wouldn't use it as a framework in the sense of measurements and metrics and so on, but it's a, a good cross-check to ensure you haven't yeah. missed anything. And then you've got nascent privacy seals. I mean, like Europe, yeah. privacy, for example, that's more measurable and for everybody listening there's a number of what's interesting about euro privacy is there's there's sections dealing with particular issues like autonomous vehicles biometrics ai i think so again that's another kind of useful resource and and then i think it's the task is really to ask well what works for us and what's yeah. how do we get the how do we get the ship sailing because the ship needs to sail it's better yeah it's things are moving and, and you're kind of learning and starting to get the benefits other than wait, waiting for the ultimate. Yes. And that brings us nicely on to Picasso. So the Picasso, the pram, so this is privacy risk assessment method and that we've published a white paper following mm-hmm. setting up a, a working group of DPOs and privacy experts. We've been working on this for end to end about six months. Yep. And there's a white paper that's been published and a toolkit comprising a series of Excels in a very kind of easy-to-use fashion. And they essentially create a structure for two things. Firstly, recognizing that if you're a DPO and you've just been hired and feet onto the desk and two weeks later the CEO calls and says, how are we doing? Where are the risks? This gives you a checklist, a a sort of priority list of triage particularly important areas so that you can focus on something smaller and deliver a clear heads up as to what at least the most important kind of red flag areas might be. And then there are separate Excels dealing with full risk assessment. And there's a scoring mechanism so you can identify where you would be without any controls or the as-is position. Uh And then if you do insert controls where that leaves you in net risk terms, Okay. And what we've done is try and make it as very accessible and actually visual. So there's a heat map and to show where particular 
well, basically where your higher risk areas are and additional kind of compliance steps may be required versus what we're doing okay on privacy notices, for example. So easy to use, straightforward, and I'd encourage people to access it, try it out, and give us feedback. Yeah, because it's the start of the conversation and we're very keen to take it forward on that basis. So that's kind of where we are. That's brilliant. I'm Steve Wright. Today I was joined by Nick Graham, partner at Denton's in London. Um, Thank you, Nick. That was fantastic and insightful as always. For more, please go to the website www.picasso.org. You can pull down the Picasso Pram paper and toolkit that Nick was referring to there and other fantastic papers such as the ESG privacy risk paper that was created a couple of months ago. So more coming up. Please stay tuned and look forward to speaking to you at our next podcast episode. I'm Steve Wright signing off. Thank you. Mm -hmm.